Well, good morning. You all sound great, especially for 6.30 in the morning. We were, not, we were not sure what to expect, but I had a feeling that we would have a pretty decent turnout because you guys are just crazy enough. For some of you, this is like the time of your first break during the day, so, um, which is weird to me. Um, if you are new here, you're even stranger to me, but I'm so glad you are here. And um, I just, I love that. And um, I just want to encourage you that if you are new, please, um, if you would, uh, if you would trust, you've already trusted us a ton by coming here, and we understand that. But if you um, would take it even a step further and let us um, at least introduce ourselves to you, meet you. Um, Jeff is sitting back there, Robbie, myself, Donna, Christoph is around, Leslie is always around, any of the um, greeters or anyone, um, the children's check-in desk, anywhere that you find somebody, um, we would just love to meet you. And one of the ways that you can do that, if that just seems too scary, um, we have a more subtle approach, and you can grab a communication card. They're in the seat backs in front of you, right there. You can grab one, you can fill that out, and you can put it in one of our offerings boxes um, that are that are back um, at the at the back doors and and speaking of that you may notice that is something that's a little different um, maybe than what you're used to in church we don't um, we don't pass an offering plate here or anything like that we uh, we just ask that you know people who give and support our church we have those offering boxes so that you can come and, and just like they did in the, in the Old Testament you come and you bring your gifts and your tithes and your offerings um, as you enter into the sanctuary to to worship um, our king. And so um, that, is, that is a little bit about us, but uh, we would love to be able um, to connect with you more in the coming days and weeks just to learn more about your story. Would you pray with me? Father, as we celebrate the resurrection, which we do every Sunday, every Sunday we sing of the glory the risen Christ. But this morning, Lord, we pay specific and careful attention and we just rejoice and are in awe and wonder. I pray, God, that this morning you would fill us with that sense of awe and wonder. Let us see the resurrection for what it is. As best as we possibly can, God, let us not settle for lesser understandings, but let us press on and know that there is more and more. And God, it just amazes me to know that in eternity, in glory, our love and awe and wonder for the resurrection will only increase every day for all of eternity. So God, let it be true this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So with each passing year, I realize um, that I am getting older and older and older. That's, that's how age works. That's how math works. I get it. But uh, like I'm starting to cross over where um, illustrations that I'm using kind of fall on um, kind of blank faces. Like the, the other day, I was talking to somebody, and um, I gave the illustration. Uh, uh, I did a quote from the movie Tommy Boy. And I got blank faces back. Like I'm getting right now, really. I mean, some of you, I realize in this culture, maybe you're like embarrassed to admit that you watched it. Um, 
And um, like, like I sometimes am embarrassed to admit that I've watched that maybe a million times. But, um, but you start to see that. And I do that in coaching a lot. I'll, I'll quote a movie or I'll use an example or an illustration and it falls flat. And I realized that this morning when I came up with my first illustration that I wanted to, to illustrate the, the human condition. The human condition that we all experience, that we're all in, the, 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 the depth of our sin, the depth of our um, depravity, the depth of our brokenness. And for me, there is one thing that so fully encapsulates the depth of, of my own brokenness and the brokenness of all humanity. And it is found in the snooze bar. And I realized, as I said that, there's like a certain percentage of people that have at best vague recollections of the snooze bar. How many of you remember what the snooze bar was? Right? Like, so now you have phones and whatever, and, and the, the, the new iteration of that, if you're too young for that, if you set um, multiple alarms on your phone, right? So like, I got to get up at 6, but I set an alarm for 6 and 6.10 and 6.20. Anybody do that? No one's going to admit that. Oh yeah, okay. Some of you are going to admit that. I love it. Okay. So that's like the new version of the snooze bar, but you miss like the beauty. My kids will never fully appreciate the beauty of the snooze bar and realizing that was a central feature of alarm clocks. I mean, do you remember this? Like they, you buy the alarm and it would like feature like giant snooze bar. Like, they want to make it the biggest, fattest button on top of that clock, right? Like, it can't be the off button. The off button was like this tiny, minuscule thing that you'd have to use a pen to, like, touch in there and click it off or whatever. Or if you did what I did, just rip the cord out of the wall, like, most times because you can't find it. But that snooze bar, man, like, they got to a place where as technology was going, it's just like you just had to wave at it and it would go on to snooze, right? And the reason why, and I see that you're like, okay, I get the snooze bar, but how does that encapsulate human depravity? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to answer that right now. The way that it did that, the reason why we hit the snooze bar is this promise that nine more minutes was going to solve all of my problems. Like just nine more minutes of rest. Nine more minutes to just get, you know, a little bit. And some of you, I know it's like seven, ten or whatever. Those are all, I think those are made in another country. Like American alarm clocks, nine minute snooze. Like that's what they always are. So, um, but they just like, and I always love that. Like, how did they arrive at nine minutes? Not 10, why not 11? Why not four? Why not, but, but nine minutes was gonna solve all, just a little bit more. And we find that that's it's kind of the human condition of just this belief that if I just, just a little bit more and I'll get there. Just a little bit more and I'll feel fully rested. Just a little bit more and I'll be excited and energized to take on the day. Just a little bit more and I'll be satisfied. And it is those broken and disordered desires in us, in our pursuit, in our believing that lie, that if I just get a little bit more of this thing that I'm chasing, that I think will solve all of my problems, it is that brokenness that actually ends up leading to all the brokenness we see in the world. The problem of evil, the pain and destruction and everything is all, as James puts it, what causes quarrels among you is that not this, you, you, have, you don't have and you, you want things, you desire things and you don't have them. And so we fight. And sometimes in really small ways and sometimes in big ways. Whether it's the destruction that's caused in, in our own relationships, or whether it's war or famine 
These are all things that are caused by our disordered desires. Our belief that if I just can get a little bit more, I know what I want, I know what I need, I know what will satisfy me. John D. Rockefeller, who was at the time the, the wealthiest man, I think, in the world, certainly in our country, when asked how much money is enough, he famously said, just a little bit more. And that is our condition. And if it's not in nine minutes of sleep, I realize I'm preaching to the wrong choir here a little bit. You're at the sunrise service. So I know, but here's the the brilliance of that illustration, by the way, is you either identify with me in the snooze bar or you agree that that is like the depth of human depravity is the snooze bar. So either way, it's a win-win illustration. Thank you. Full points awarded. All right. But if we don't, if it's not sleep, right? And if it's not just a little bit more money, you can name it. Like, what is the thing right now that you want that you think will fix everything? That you think will satisfy you? We ask that question from time to time, and it's because we have to constantly confront that in our lives. Confront those desires. What is the thing that you think that that, that next job will bring fulfillment, that that next relationship will give your life meaning, that that next purchase will give you enough excitement And other people deal with that in a different way by just trying to kill and thwart all their desires. Some of you have been so burned by that so many times that you've just decided, I'm just not going to want anything anymore. I'm just not going to desire anything. If I don't get my hopes up, then I'll never be let down. Why do we do that? Because we know that those things, we all have a litany, just just a huge array of experiences of how we have chased after that thing and sometimes like a dog chasing a car you catch it and then you don't know what to do with it and it falls flat and it gets old and the reason is because as much as we think we see reality that thing that we're chasing isn't really the thing that we want we want the thing that that thing promises. It's not the thing. It's not the new job. It's the promise of meaning and meaningful work and purpose. It's not the new car. It's the promise of excitement around it. It's not, it's not the extra nine minutes of sleep. It's, it's the rest. The promise of rest. Even By the way, even when it comes to something like cancer, it's not the healing. It's the promise of life that we really want. At the end of the day, if we dig deeply enough and all those things that we want or chase and desire, they have a root desire that cannot be filled by those things that we chase. The vacation never lasts long enough to give true rest the spouse can't be perfect enough to fulfill you and your need to be loved and known. The job that promised so much ends up being yet another one that doesn't fulfill. C.S. Lewis addresses this. He says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation 
is that I was made for another world. See, at its core, this is what Christianity is offering. This is the good news of the gospel. See, ironically, people often think and want to characterize and mischaracterize Christianity as a a bunch of rules and, and commandments about just like trying to be a good person, when in fact, it's about new life. It's about abundant life. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's a story of, of a people who did not trust God to provide this abundant life. Didn't, who forsake God and said, I know better what will mean, what will give me meaning and fulfillment in life. And in doing so, rebelled against God and his kingdom. And in so doing, brought death and destruction into God's creation. I mentioned James earlier when he talks about that, but he says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And we know that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's not just about the penalty for our sin and our forgiveness of that penalty, though that is true. It is about so much more than that. It is about a life that is offered. And in Jesus Christ, when we talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that life on display. In the life of Jesus, we see who we were meant to be. We see in the life of Jesus what it actually means to be human. Sometimes we use the phrase here that he lived the life that we could not live. And sometimes we just put that in in a sense of his holiness or his morality. And we look at him, we say, look, he was perfect. He was without sin. Like, look how he responds to his accusers. Look at how much patience and compassion he has. And, And that's all true. That is all true. But there's more. There's more to the life of Jesus. And that is that Jesus is actually experiencing the abundant life that he offers to us. We don't often think about that. He shows us and demonstrates what does it look like to have all of your deepest desires met. And he calls others to follow him in it. Now, if you're thinking about the life of Jesus, you might say, and, and maybe rightly so, that you could look at his, the surface of his life and say, I, I don't know, that looks very abundant. Right? Like, he's homeless, doesn't have a job, he's betrayed by his friends. Then there's that whole, like, arrested, beaten, murdered thing. That doesn't seem like a very abundant life. His ministry lasted three years. Like, do you realize I've been here for six and a half years? I got a gasp. I don't know. I think it was a child, I guess. Some of you have no idea. Like, you're like, you've been new. You're newer than six and a half years. So for, as far as you're concerned, I've been here forever. For, for others of you, it feels like I've been here forever. But it's been six and a half years. Jesus' ministry was half that. And so we might say, man, there, there's just so much, to, so much more to do. How would you say that that was a, like a f- totally fulfilled life? But if we look at the inside 
we look on the outside, it can feel that way. But if you look on the inside, it turns out he actually lives the perfect human life. Not just in morality and avoiding sin and resisting sin, but in the fulfillment of abundant life. Let me show you what I mean. He, he had no home. But he was completely and perfectly content. He had no money. But he had all of his needs provided for and was completely secure, never worrying about where a meal was going to come from. He had no status, and yet he influenced everyone he came into contact with. He had no spouse, but he was completely and fully and deeply loved. He had no stability, but he was constantly at peace. He had no job, but lived a life of great purpose. He was afflicted and betrayed, but was full of joy. And he died, but he rose again. Everything we truly desire, whether it is joy or peace or purpose or influence or meaning or love or to be known or security or even life, it is all fulfilled and on display in the life of Jesus. And he invites us into that life. He doesn't just live a perfect life and then give it to us as a substitute, which he does but he invites us into his life. And ultimately, this is, this is the choice that we have. To continue to pursue our own desires, to continue to believe that that snooze bar or that job or that new boat or that new relationship or whatever it is, to continue to grasp after that and chase that and pursue that in my broken desires, ultimately leading to sin and death and destruction or I can surrender my desires to Jesus and find abundant life. You might say, well, that's great, but how do we, how do we get that, though? Like, I understand what you're saying, but how do we get that? For, for many of us, we've, we've known our sin, we've heard about God's forgiveness, but this idea of actually taking on the life of Jesus just seems too far, too difficult, too impossible. And Jesus also communicates it that way. And the way he speaks of it often leaves people confused. He says that we must be born again. It's the famous interaction of Jesus with Nicodemus, who is a teacher, Pharisee, and a teacher of the law. And, and, the, and Nicodemus is basically asking, how can I taste the kingdom? How can I see the kingdom? And, and Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like even a Pharisee, like a great teacher of the law, is confused when Jesus says, well, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it the way you're currently going about things. You have to be made new. You have to be born again. 
And he asks, like, can I, can I return to my mother's womb? I, this is one of those times where I wish I had Jesus' facial expression, right? Like, not just his words, but his facial expression. I picture it when, when Nicodemus says, like, I'm old. Like, do I have to return into my mother's womb? I picture him imagining, like, something like, like what? Ew, no, ew, no. Like, you're a teacher of the law. You don't understand this. But it turns out that even after 2,000 years of the church, we still struggle to understand this. It's not just Nicodemus, it's the disciples. After they've been following Jesus for years, as he neared his death, Jesus told his disciples like he's preparing them for when he goes away. And he tells them, don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't not so, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that to you. I, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come back and take you to where I am. And then he has the audacity to say, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't have any idea what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. We don't even know what you're talking about. How can we possibly know how to get there? And this is where Jesus gives the secret to all of this. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the disciples were so used to the idea that, that their faith was about following these rules, that the rabbi would give them, this is the way that you live your life. Live your life in this way. The, the way was just like how I, I go about my faith. And Jesus is saying, I'm the way. Latch on to me. You know the way because you know me. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, you can't know the way because he is the way. And we see in the statement that it's not about just living a better life or being a more moral person or about biblical principles and trying to apply those to my life. It is about latching on to Jesus, identifying with him, hanging on to him. See, the way to abundant life was to follow him, not just in his life, but in his death and his resurrection. The way of Jesus and latching on to him, if you latch on to him in his life, then you will follow him through and latch on to him in his death and in his resurrection. Paul later puts it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This abundant life that we're talking about, this life of like having every desire fully met and fulfilled, not only here in, in this life, but then for all eternity, to find this life, we must die. We must be born again as a new creation. And like Nicodemus, we might ask, how, how is this possible? What does it mean to die with him? What does Paul mean when he says we must be crucified with Christ? Well, Jesus talks about that. When he tells people to follow him, he says this, if anyone would come after me, if you would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So we see here, in part, dying, participating in the death of Jesus Christ is denying ourselves. Denying that desire and those pursuits that we think will fulfill us and denying that. That if we seek to save our life, we'll actually lose it. If we seek to hold on to things that we can't hold on to, we will lose it all. But if we lay down our life, for Christ, then we'll save it. That abundant life that we're talking about, like you, you have ways to go about that abundant life that you're trying to pursue right now. And part of dying with Christ means dying to those ways. Die to yourself. Die to being the Lord of your own life. Put that to death. Because you are not your own. Paul says to the, in 1 Corinthians, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And we don't like that, especially in our culture, because we want to be our own. We want to be in control. We want to be the king of our own world. And God says, you can't. If you want the life that Christ offers, then you must deny yourself and pick up your cross daily. It's not just a one-time deal. It's not just once when you pray to prayer when you're 12 years old and so then it's, it's all good. It is a daily dying to yourself. Paul is saying, I don't, I don't belong to me anymore. I lay it all down. Christ lives in me. My life now belongs to him. He even uses this language later in Galatians, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It means we put it to death. Not just set them aside, but put them to death and confronted them for the lies that they are. Say, that's not who I am anymore. I do not belong to me. I belong to the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we put those things to death, but then we live with him. We, we identify with him in his resurrection. It doesn't just leave us there. We don't just stay in that like, okay, so I put to death all of my desires. And then the rest of my life is just like some of you that, that have killed your desires and said, right, like that's what you have to do. It actually kind of sounds like Buddhism a little bit. Like if I just kill my desires and then everything's fine. I put those to death. No, that's not, that's only part of it. You put those to death and then you are raised to life with new desires that will be deeply fulfilled because you're a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus doesn't stay in the grave and therefore we do not stay in the grave. Like our desires that we kill and that we crucify and all that, they don't stay dead so that we have no desires. They are reborn and resurrected as beautiful and kingdom desires that he fulfills. We don't do that in our own power, but by the same power that raises Christ from the dead. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
So we are identifying. If we want the life of Jesus, then we must identify with him in, our, in his death by putting to death our desires and our flesh and then be raised with him in power as a new creation, born again. In Romans 6, Paul says it this way, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's why we practice baptism the way that we do with immersion. Like It's the symbolism of we are buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. So this is what Paul means. He no longer belongs to himself. He has been crucified with Christ. He has identified with the death of Jesus. He has lost it. And if you want to read more about Paul, like look at what, all that he gave up. He lost everything. In fact, at one point he says, I suffered the loss of all things so I might gain Christ. Like It was worth it. He no longer belongs to himself. He's died to sin. He's died to making idols of things and has a new Lord and he is a new creation. And that's what is offered to us. To attain the life that Jesus offers through identifying in his death and in his resurrection. There is no other way. But that all sounds really extreme. Like Nicodemus, we kind of get left saying like, well... I don't understand. Like, I, I don't understand. Like, this, this is just like, this is where it gets weird. Like, if you just talk about like being a good person and applying some biblical principles and doing all that, like that all makes sense to me. But you start talking about dying and being resurrected and that's when it gets weird. And we don't like the language of dying to ourselves. We don't like the finality of that, right? Like we want to hold back some of ourselves. Like, okay, well, I don't want to just kill all these desires off. I'm going to keep some of these because some of these are good and I, and I kind of came up with them and I've achieved some of these things and then I'm just going to add some, of, some kingdom desires in there to it. I'm going, to, I'm going to tame some of my sin. I'm not going to put it to death. I'm just going to control it. I'm going to get it under control and that'll be good enough for right now. I'll compartmentalize. I'll just like kind of separate and be like, okay, in my spiritual life, totally. My spiritual life, I will die to my old ways of that and I'll give my time and a little bit of money and all that. But then the rest of my life, I'm going to hold on to me. And it doesn't work that way. Or we think, well, the resurrection just seems so extreme and so intangible. Church is full of people who claim the death of Jesus and ask for the forgiveness of their sins, but then insist on living this new life in their own power, in their own strength, to try to prove to God that they're worthy. And it doesn't work. We think like the resurrection just seems so extreme. I don't need that. I don't need to like die and be born again. Like I just need a little bit of help. I'm not spiritually dead. I'm just spiritually a little sleepy. I'm just morally a little off. Like I don't like, I'm not like other people. I'm basically a good person. I know I'm not perfect, but I just need a little bit of help. I just need a little more consistency. And we see this all the time. People come to church, they hear a sermon and sing songs, hear music, and it feels good and it feels inspiring. And then you go and you try to live a little bit better than you did before. And you can't do it. And it doesn't last. And it spirals out of control in so many different ways. It's one of the reasons why the witness of the church is so broken in our culture. Why so many people say about Christians that they are hypocrites. 
We've talked about this before. The reason why the world sees us as hypocrites is because we are. We talk about joy, but we grumble and complain. We say God is in control, and we try to seize control. We say God is good, but we worry. In short, we're not living the abundant life that Christ offers us. We're living with a set of beliefs or opinions or philosophies, but not the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that makes us new. We hold on to truth and forget about love and mercy. We talk about God's wrath and judgment and forget that it was aimed at us. We see the speck in our brother's eye and miss the log in our own. We buy into worldly visions of social justice or freedom, all trying to bring in a kingdom without the king. And we break all these things apart into things we feel like we can do and feel like things we can't do. So we love people who love us and we hate our enemies. We, we invite people to banquets who can pay us back and we ignore the people that have nothing to offer. We love conditionally even as we are loved unconditionally. And it is all evidence that we are trying to pursue the life of Jesus without participating in the death and resurrection. And the greatest example I can give to this is what we have been going through as a church in the book of Acts. And we have talked about multiple times, look at how they changed. Look at the difference. When they were just listening and watching Jesus and following him and trying to understand in their own strength and their own power and do what he was doing, they were left with incomplete understandings. They were confused. They often pursued what they thought were good things, like being the greatest in heaven. How can that be a bad desire? I want to be the greatest in heaven. They understood judgment wrong. When you come across people and they say, are you going to call down fire on them and destroy them? Jesus is like, what are you talking about? They misunderstood their own standing. They misunderstood what Jesus was about when they would chase away children and when they would be fearful to go near the lepers. And then look at them after the resurrection, after they are able to identify and participate in the resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at the transformation. Before, they were constantly misunderstanding, but in Acts, we see them exercising great wisdom. Before, they were fighting over who was the greatest, but now they're declaring Jesus as the greatest and constantly displaying humility. Before, they were afraid for their lives, but now they live with great courage and boldness. Before, they were completely unsettled, but now they were content in all circumstances. They are living in true freedom, an abundant life, and nothing the world can throw at them takes away from that. That is what is available to you. That is what we celebrate. Like the resurrection, the empty tomb is the evidence that you can be free 
from whatever the equivalent of the snooze bar is in your life. You can be free from those desires that seem to enslave you and control you. Those things that you can't get out of your mind that you just think, I just need to fix that. I just need to get that. No matter how hard you try to suppress it, you can't. Like what needs to happen is you put it to death and be raised to new life, to be a new creation, to participate in the resurrection. And by doing that, you attain abundant life. You want influence? You want to be influential? Then die to your old thoughts of what that means and how to get it. And live as a new creation, a child of the kingdom by faith in Jesus. Who says you want to become great? Become the servant of all. You want to be loved? Die to your old thoughts of how to get that and how to manipulate that and to use people for your own ends. And live as a new creation, being fulfilled by the love of Christ, so you are free to love others how he has loved you. You want to be content? Die to your sin of wanderlust and believing the grass is greener and you just get a little bit more and live by faith in the good Father who gives good gifts to his children and supplies everything that we need. You want to be healed? Die to hanging on to this life as though that is all there is and live by faith that you will be healed whether in this life or the next. You want justice? Die to your identity as being the judge and surrender that to Jesus knowing that he will one day make all things right. You want rest? Die to the cycle of running yourself ragged, trying to please everyone, being identified as the one who does everything for everybody, only to crash in a heap of entertainment and hobbies and escapism. And find your identity in Christ and find your rest in Christ. You want peace? Stop trying to control everything. Die to all of that and surrender to the one who holds everything in his hands. If you want to be free, and die to your sin, deny yourself, and live to Christ. We live this life as a testimony to a lost and hurting world. And maybe that sounds too good to be true. It sounds too idealistic. But it is most definitely true. Paul ends that verse He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's when you realize that Christianity is a story unlike any other. Jesus did not just set an example of what it would look like to have an abundant life. He did not just pay the price, but it was out of his love for us. And so if you wonder, well, how do I know I, how do I know he's good? How do I know I can trust him? How do I know if I actually die to all these things and just live for Christ? How do I know that he will fulfill what he has said? Because he went to the cross. What more could he possibly do to demonstrate the depth of his love? While you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Well, how do I know that he's able to do what he promises? Maybe his intentions are good, but how do I know he's able to fulfill all those things? Because of the empty tomb. Because he rose, to, rose from the dead. And that same power abides in those who place their trust in him. The curse has been broken. Our endless cycle of chasing all these things that leave us empty and causing pain and destruction around us, we can be free from all of that. And we are called to be free from all of that so that we might live a life that is abundant and demonstrate to the world what we mean when we say that you were created by God. And you have rebelled against him, but he has offered a way home. And you can see the evidence of that and the truth of that. You can see the evidence of it in the book of Acts and you can see it in the evidence of the sons and daughters of Faith Church. Let's pray. Father, this is why we celebrate Easter. This is why we sing. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us right now as we consider areas of our life, because it doesn't matter how long we've been walking with you, God, you know that we struggle to believe this every day. Every day we have to put this to death. Every day we have to remind ourselves that we are not who we once were. Lord, I pray that we would remember when that feels overwhelming and it feels like it's too much, that we can come back to what you said. We know the way. Jesus, you are the way. Whenever it seems overwhelming, that we would just fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we would rejoice over your great love for us demonstrated on the cross and the great power demonstrated in the empty grave. And that it would change us and that we would abide in you more fully and deeply. And Lord, for those in this room yet who, who have said, I, I don't know, God, I pray right now you would move in them in their hearts and that they would not, they would not turn from you today. That they would confess their sin. Turn from their rebellion, lay down their sword and say, I'm yours. God, that we would be a people that can say we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. the glorious truth. And we sing of this. In Jesus' name, amen.